I started Coffee with Humans as a way to make meaningful connections. See, I believe when people on individual journeys cross paths, real good can come from that. And in that sacred moment, we have the opportunity to do three things. Name reality and describe the future we want. Destroy things for our good by moving on from that which no longer serves us. Create or recreate ourselves, moving us to the reality we describe. That's the essence of Coffee with Humans, making the world a better place. One conversation at a time. Well, welcome to our viewers and our listeners here. This coffee with humans today. My special guest is Max Ivy, the blind blogger who I met about eight minutes ago, and we've only chatted about some superficial things. Uh, we've not got into the depths of Max's soul and mine. So you're you're in for a treat here. Welcome, Max. Well, uh, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here and have a great conversation with you. And as I was listening to that intro, I was thinking of, I was thinking of two things. Uh, Carl Sagan's intro when he used to do his TV show, and the intro to Star Trek. I mean, it was very. I mean, I felt like I was on the set of a big time television show listening to your intro. You are on the set of a big time television show. <laughs> that's, that's the secret here. I'm in a studio in Utah. That's not true. I'm sitting in my dining room slash now office area outside Chicago. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm sitting in my bedroom slash uh, exercise room slash uh, office slash podcasting recorders recording studio. So we're 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 about even, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm super excited to talk to you. I know a little bit about your story because uh, you you were very bold. You're the blind blogger, which I think is uh, super catchy. And you've got this kind of kind of forward uh, assertiveness to uh, your story. But before we get into your story, I'm curious what inspired you to click the link to have coffee with me. Well, that's pretty. That's that is very simple. I and I feel like I'm stealing your. I feel like I'm stealing your thoughts because I too believe that every time I have a conversation with somebody, it's an opportunity for something amazing to happen. Whether it's the guy pushing the wheelchair because I don't want to walk three miles to get to my plane, uh, or the person pouring coffee, or people waiting next to me in in a, in a doctor's office. I believe every time I open my mouth and have a conversation with somebody, something amazing can happen. And I really feel like those people who go through life scared that the person is that they, you know, if they talk to somebody, it's going to end in pain. They're going to be disappointed, embarrassed, whatever. Those people are missing out on so many amazing blessings that happen. If you just say, Hey, my name is Max. And, uh, what are you here for today? You know, that's sometimes that's all it takes. And yeah. You know, I uh, I have been blessed to have uh, to meet a fellow author at, in in an Uber and have a trained opera singer sing to me in a taxi cab. So it just never you just never know what's going to happen. And as long as you expect to have uh, good things happen, usually that's what shows up. Where did you get that uh, 
that uh, I don't know that feeling from was there a particular moment where something shifted and you're like I should I should talk to people and make good things happen or is that something that you grew up with or did it develop over time you know I think a little of it is you know I grew up with it because I was uh, in a family of carnival owners and you know you have to put yourself out there whether you're booking events or asking people if they want to play your game or uh, or asking the customer at the window what they want to buy and, and doing your best to sell them more than what they came up there to buy, you know, those sorts of things. Uh, then later when I went online, it was like, well, I had to reach out to as many people as possible and have conversations because quite often if they heard my elevator pitch, they really weren't interested in what I was doing. But, you know, if I could get them talking, then good things would happen. And then really the, the biggest part of it, I think, is just necessity because I live in a suburb of Houston. We don't have much in the way of mass transit. And so I've had to figure out how can I advance my goals, whether it w- it is helping people sell used carnival equipment or blogging, podcasting, you know, uh, finding clients who want to who want to hire me to get them more exposure, whatever it is. I've had to do that from my house for the most part. And so I have found ways to make connections. I have, uh, you know, I have just, I I can't tell you how many close friends I have through the internet that I've never met. Uh, Some of them that I have met in person that have been just incredible people when I got to them face to face. Some of them have hosted me in their homes. So basically it was like, okay, I didn't have a choice. If I wanted to get to where Mike's needed to go, I had to reach out to people, uh, over the internet or over the radio and eventually through podcast interviews, that was, that was how I grew my brand. That was how I did everything was remotely. And so when you're, when you don't drive, don't have a driver and don't have mass transit options, I think you're pretty much uh, required, you know, to reach out to as many people wherever and however you can. Yeah. So you come from a family of carnival owners, which is the, which is honestly the first time I've ever heard that said. Um, and I've been alive for a long time. Yeah. Well, part of that is because most people that come from carnival families aren't exactly proud of it. They, they worry that when they mention it in, in uh, conversations with people that aren't in the business, they're going to automatically think less of, of us as people. But I've always been proud of it because I, you know, I felt like we provided a great service. We dealt ethically. Uh, quite often, we would book contracts and keep them for years, even though we didn't have all the rides that the event called for. Because the organizers, they knew, they knew my dad. They, they knew he would make sure they got their end. He knew that he would solve problems with the other people's rides that we would have to subcontract or avoid them in the first place. So. You know, we, uh, it's just, it's just who I am, but yeah, most carnival owners are not really proud of it. Even though a lot of them nowadays are six and seven figure type business owners. Some of them even eight yeah. figure business owners, you know, it's, it's gotten to be a very corporate industry, but it's still one of the things people that are in it are ashamed of it. And of course, as my dad used to say, the only way you get into this business is you're born into it or you're married into it. Yeah, that that would be my feeling as well. There's no school, I don't think, to become a carnival owner. <laughs> they, they don't ever tell you that. Like I, I, I remember I would give some speeches to people uh, in the Rotary Club to students and tell them, you know, well, you've got a couple different ways you could go after high school. You could go to the service industry. You could go to college. You could go to the trades. Never once was it 
you could go to the carnival. <laughs> and you know, after the after the uh, the more, the home loan crisis of two thousand and eight, we started seeing people with MBAs turning up working on the carnival midway, and the yeah. reason the reason was that most of these were single people that didn't have didn't have other responsibilities, and most of the most of the major carnivals. In addition to your pay, they offer housing. So, you know, he some of these people could get could find an income when the, also mm-hmm. jobs were kind of scarce. And in bad times, carnivals in, incomes usually increase. So there were carnivals hiring, and, and travels built into it too. That so too, could, yeah. And some people just enjoy the travel, and of course, most people that that did it coming out of two thousand eight, two thousand and nine didn't think they were going to do it forever, but they thought it was a good safe haven until things straightened out again. And I have a friend who owns a a large carnival that travels from Texas to Colorado and back every year. One of his concession managers now, and this guy is in charge of 20 games. He probably, he probably sources hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of stock every, every month. And, you know, the guy used to work on wall street. Now he, now he travels with a carnival running the kids games, you know, it's, There's got to be a simplicity to it. I mean, after you burn yourself out yeah, on Wall Street where you just rush, 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 go, 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 go. And then all of a sudden you find that whatever whatever you thought was security is no longer. And you think, man, what did I do it all for? There's got to be a simplicity to just being like, hey, you know what? We're going to go play some games and then we're going to travel to a new place. We're going to play some games and people are going to smile at me instead of yelling at me. And, (laughs) you know, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, I think, and I think that you know one of the one of the lessons we have to continue relearning, it seems, is that nothing is safe or secure. You know, in the in the seventies, people in the audio auto industry, you know, were faced with all that competition from from Japan and Korea, and, and realized that those jobs that used to be passed down from father to son to grandson were no longer reliable. You know, and then two thousand eight, two thousand nine, we had the home mortgage crisis and. You know, a lot of the jobs in the real estate and banking world, it turned out they weren't guaranteed. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, now here we have COVID. And think about this. We have hospitals that are laying off doctors and nurses. And we have cities that are at least starting to think about having to lay off police officers and firefighters because thanks to COVID, their tax income is down and they have to start cutting expenses somewhere or, or go into bankruptcy, which is almost like a death sentence for, you know, for uh, municipal organizations to go into bankruptcy. Yeah. Yeah. So it's one of those things we have to keep relearning that very little is guaranteed. And of course that has led to a lot of people starting podcasts, you know, right. (laughs) Well, fun, fun always sells. And so uh, that's proof, I think of the carnival uh, lifestyle that fun fun always sells and it is probably a safe haven now blind in in the carnival you don't sell car you, you don't, you're not in the carnival business anymore i understand uh, but you help people sell amusement equipment but then off of that off the heels of this path and i don't want to take away from your story but uh, you you have a you have kind of a circuitous path to bring you to this point where you're now motivational <laughs> motivational speaking which um seems seems um a far cry from the carnival (laughs) yeah i'm sorry you had to hurt yourself so much to get to that question but um (laughs) so yeah what what, and and it's all tied together what happened was is people started noticing the work i was doing to promote the amusement equipment i had started a blog i was learning social media along with the rest of the world 
because, you know, I started that website in 2007 before Facebook, before Wi-Fi and before WordPress. So I even had to learn how to hand code HTML in the first few years I was online with that business, which is something difficult. And anybody who's ever coded will, will definitely appreciate that struggle. So basically, people kept telling me that I was inspiring and I kept telling them, no, I'm not. And finally, a good friend of mine, Adrian Smith, who I like to call my blogging mama, because she taught me everything I know about uh, blogging, about relationship building and relationship marketing online. And she finally convinced me, she's like, Max, you have so much more to offer the world than selling used rides. Mm -hmm. And I would say, no, I'm just a guy. I, I show up every day. I work my butt off to try to build a business. And she finally explained it to me. She said, here's the thing. You have a built-in excuse. If all you wanted to do was sit on the couch or lay in your bed and watch TV and eat junk food, nobody would say the first word about it. But the <laughs> fact that you have this excuse and don't use it is what makes you compelling. And, okay. oh, at the same time, there are lots of people who don't have this uh, built-in challenge, and they're not doing anything with their lives. They're just uh, – they sleepwalk through their days, and they stay comfortable even if that comfortable position is painful because they're afraid of what might come next. So – Finally explained to me that I have a role to inspire others. And so in what about six years ago, I started the blindblogger.net, which I did not choose that name on purpose. It's what people had been referring to me as on LinkedIn and Facebook for a while before I finally decided to start this uh, this business as a author and a speaker and and a, and a traveler, etc. And so they said, Max, we've been calling you the blind blogger for a while. If you're going to have a new website for this new adv adventure, that's what you should call it. So uh, the .com was taken, the .net wasn't, and, and here we are six years later. If you Google blind blogger, you're probably going to get my website. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, right? I mean, it's – I don't know what they would call me other than Jason – but there's nothing. That yeah. Yeah. But you know, the, the thing is, is that most people don't have any, any friends or connections that are blind. Yeah. Um, a lot of people only have one person in their circle that's blind. So that, or one person in their circle that has a disability. So that person becomes the blind, whatever, you know, like the musician right. that was on the voice, he's still known as blind Joe. That's just what you call him. Uh, except yeah. now on Twitter, he's the blind Joe, I guess there's more than one of them now. Um, you know, I'm the blind blogger. I have a friend in Arizona. He's the blind magi magician, you know, so it, how, do you, it just, how do you feel about that? Is it so, you know, it's it's a disability, obviously, but it's your normal. So you might I, I don't I don't know how you feel about being called the blind blogger. Why does it have to be that that term? What's your thought? OK, I I have several thoughts. and It just depends on what kind of day I'm having in the first okay. place. I'm cool with it because I didn't pick the name. Uh, it, it, you know, it was put on me and I was smart enough to say thank you and run with it. And sometimes okay. that's the best thing you could do is just don't argue about it. Just say thank you and do the work. Um, it's petty. It fits. Yeah, and it did yeah. fit. Um, I have other days where I'm like, you know, Max, it, don't, it no longer fits. Mm. But, you know, then you get into the question of how do you – how do you expand without basically destroying what you've built over six years? So that's, you know, part of the reason why I'm still the blind blogger. The thing that I think is really interesting for me is I have to remind myself that when I, when I became the blind blogger online six years ago, because I think it's fair to say I was the blind blogger before I accepted the moniker. Um, 
there were people both blind and sighted who were mad at me for that because they had the same opinion that, that, you know, that you're asking about. They were like, it's, yeah, it's part of you, but why do you, why does it have to be so blatantly part of your business, your marketing? And I, like I said, I have sighted and blind friends who stopped talking to me at that point. But now if you look around the social media landscape, you see more and more people who have a white cane emoji or a wheelchair emoji in their uh, social media profiles, or they've added uh, disability catchwords in their social media titles, or they've put it openly in the first few lines of their profiles. So I kind of feel like I've been part of a revolution where it used to not be okay to be so obvious about a disability to where now it's just part of a different kind of story where everybody nowadays is telling their stories and it's yeah. become okay to, you know, to really put it out there. So I, I feel kind of proud that I've been part of that. I struggle with whether or not I should, you know, should uh, evolve to some other name now that I've become more than a blogger, but you know, it's, it's branding and good branding is hard to come by. So I'm, <laughs> I'm stuck living with who I am and, you know, just going, Hey, I'm the blind blogger. I'm a, a, a former carnival owner, uh, respected amusement equipment broker, self-help author, motivational speaker, online media publicist, and host of a little show called what's your excuse. So I have a kind of long elevator pitch. Yeah. How do you feel about be, how, how do you feel about the, uh, term, uh, inspiration. Oh, I love this question. I almost wish you, I, I almost think you've been watching my podcast interviews. Cause I have this not is seen, question. I know nothing about you. I've oh, man, I, this, I, I read I love one this, paragraph. I love this question. I love this question. <laughs> Thank you so much for, we must, we must, we must be related in some way or something. Um, I love this question because I get asked, I get asked it a lot. And originally it used to make me mad, but now I have totally uh, accepted it. And I have a great answer for this question. I don't mind people calling me an inspiration or saying I'm inspirational. I just want them to tell me what did I inspire you to do? Because to me, inspiration without action is meaningless. Mm, yes. Tell me what you did because I inspired you. Uh, otherwise, me and you doing this podcast, we're just entertainment. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think I don't remember who I was talking with at one point in time. Um I don't remember. I can't remember what the conversation was, but the point of it was that this idea of inspiration. <clears throat> um, oh, that's who it was. I think it was my friend, Frank. You should know Frank. I'll get you in contact with Frank. Cool. Frank uh, has an inspiring story from kind of like, uh, you know, living on the streets um, to, you know, now a successful business guy and, and he helps other people and he just, uh, you know, won awards um, for being the, like the big networker in his area in Colorado. And, uh, um, people have talked about, you know, Hey, you're, you know, you're very inspiring. And I think what I, what I heard in all of that was uh, people tend to apply a particular weight to another individual and say, would you carry this weight of being my inspiration for a while? When in fact, I don't think, I think, I think, I think that's unfair, right? So, so why should you carry the weight of being my inspiration? So you have an inspiring story, but there's a, there's a lot of inspiring stories around us and 
and we need to kind of carry that weight internally rather than giving it to somebody else and saying, hey, I need you to drag me forward. Well, that is true. I mean, we do have to internalize whatever concepts they are that we've learned from this person we consider to be an inspiration and and take action on them on a regular basis. We have to make that our story. Uh, but I really don't feel any, any personal weight of being their inspiration. Um, and in fact, I, I often think that those people who have called me an inspiration, they motivate me on some of those hard days to get up and go to work because I feel like, you know, those people who have come to depend on, you know, seeing my social media posts or reading my blog or listening to a podcast interview that I feel like, I'm going to let those people down that, you know, uh, I've, I just feel an obligation and the, the, it goes back to when I finally understood that I could inspire other people. It's like, well, once I realized that was possible, then it's like, this is just another reason for me to keep doing the work, you know? Yeah. And I, and when I put that with curiosity, uh, when I put that with, well, somebody said, I can't do this, or it's so hard that if other people knew I was trying it, they would say, you can't do this. So when I add all those things together, it becomes uh, it becomes very helpful to me for me to keep moving forward. So on my side of it, I don't really have a problem with them doing it, but I want to see results. I mean, to yeah. me, I'm a, you know, I, I'm one of those people who, uh, yeah, I can, I can send out a hundred, a hundred emails and, uh, one or two of them may come back and, you know, I can, be, I'll, I'll be more happy with the results than I am with the effort. And sometimes that gets me into trouble in my own life, because as you know, we all have those stretches where with the results don't come in, in line with the effort. So, yes. so knowing people are counting on me to show up every day is, is something that helps me. Yeah. Well, to your credit, we've got a couple of people writing in here. Uh, Megan, I'm going to put her up on the screen here. She says, ooh, I like that, which is in response to when you were describing, um, I think, your kind of your elevator pitch and uh, your, you know, the kind of the beginning parts of your journey um, and how you described uh, blindness. Uh, and then Katie's, Katie's actually got a question. She's writing in here. She says, what's been the biggest challenge along your journey? Um. The biggest challenge, uh, obviously the challenge of, of understanding that I actually have a story people need to hear. That was a big one. Yeah. Um, accepting the loss of the family business. That was a very big one because, mm. and, and I, while I was never diagnosed, I believe that I had some symptoms of, of actual depression during the three years that we traveled with my uncle's carnival after ours went out of business because we had competed very bitterly with, for event bookings with them. And, you know, nobody can hurt others like family can hurt others. So there's a lot of baggage involved in it. And when I had to go to work on their midway, I was not happy. I was not making any money. So just accepting that I was no longer a carnival owner, that was a really big one. Um, was because that was part of your identity? Yes, exactly. You know, yeah. and I, and while I never played professional sports, once I went through that whole thing, I was like, you know, I can understand now what these athletes go to when they have a, when they have a career ending injury or when they finally get old enough that even they realize they can no longer perform. And so, yeah, that was, that was a very big one. Um, 
Well, it's ingrained in all of us that we need to wake up with some sort of purpose. And when we lose purpose, we have a tendency to sort of spiral out uh, or, or, or go on a search, kind of a futile search in some, in, in some people uh, that leads them down, you know, paths they shouldn't go down in this search for purpose. And it sounds, it sounds to me like you were kind of struggling in that moment. You were going to take on the family business. You were going to, uh, you know, carry, carry on the legacy. And that was you, that was your, you know, apart, apart from, you know, being blind, which is clearly part of something, you know, the physical manifestation of your identity, the unspoken, uh, part of your identity is I am also a carnival owner or amusement yeah. ride owner. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And of course it also happened at the same time that I lost my father. So yeah. not a, not a good time. And, and really, you know, that uh, not, so not only did I have to overcome the loss of the business, but I had to figure out, you know, uh, a lot of times when I had difficult decisions, I would go to him. I didn't have that option anymore. I lost my, uh, my best friend and my business partner and my dad all at, all at the same day. So, wow. uh, very, you know, very difficult time. And, uh, at the same time, I, my, my physical health got worse. And I actually had a moment where a doctor told me that if I didn't start changing my, my life and improving my health, that I had months rather than years. And so after that, I did do better. Eventually I had uh, a sleep study and found out that I had apnea and got treated for the apnea, which made a lot of the depression go away. It also helped with decision-making and, and uh, cleared up some of the fuzziness because I was getting quality sleep and rest for the first time in years. So that was, that was important. And then later on, I would have gastric surgery and I'd lose over half my body weight and get even, even closer to good health and, and of course, staying there. So a lot of bad things happened at the same time, but then as a lot of good things happened at the same time. So I'm very, I'm very blessed that, you know, uh, I got out of that hole, even though it did call, it did take a, a health emergency and being truly scared of my mortality to really start making progress in a different direction. It seems that it takes, uh, for many of us that traumatic or precipitating event where, you know, and I think they call it, you know, precipitating event because like clouds that have accumulated in the sky, they are there. The rain is there. It's ready to fall. And then it takes something to start it off. And then, the, and then all the clouds, you know, all the rain starts collecting and then falling to the ground in for you, it sounds like those rain clouds were already there. The struggle was already there. The, the, uh, need to get on track was already there. And then it took, it took kind of that, the, those moments wasn't obviously wasn't just one moment, but those moments for, to then become the, uh, become the reason that you needed to, you know, kind of bounce, bounce back or go in a new direction. How would you describe that? Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was a bounce back because I think I was very far down. And then this, uh, precipitating event, as you called it, um, I've, I've come a long way back up. I, I still have a lot farther to go. I'm, uh, I've still, I'm still accepting some of the things that I'm good at that people tell me I'm good at that. I often, I often wonder if I'm good or if they're just telling me I'm good, such as my public speaking, uh, singing, and my podcast interview style, you know, so those are things that, that I 
continue to to struggle with accepting that I'm good, you know, or that mm-hmm. I'm really good, or maybe even great, you know. It's yeah. so I've still got a ways up the hill to go, but then it wouldn't be, but then it wouldn't be a lot of fun if you, you know, if I was already at the top. And right, <laughs> it's the joy of climbing up that mountain. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think I enjoy the climb too much. If you want to know the truth about it, and uh, I was recently accused, I guess is the best word, of being addicted to challenge. And my response to that was, I'm not going to admit to that, but I will admit to being, I will admit to being comfortable being uncomfortable. Okay. Yeah. That's that. Yeah. That resonates with me. I, I, uh, I kind of see that in myself. Um, so you were, you were talking about how, uh, you know, you're, you had to bounce back. What do you think the characteristics are during that period what do you think the, the characteristics are that developed in you uh, during that time of struggle and then coming back? I think the most important characteristic was curiosity, you know, uh, and of course a desire to overcome the obstacles that were in front of me. And it was like, uh, when I started, I filed for a domain name without knowing how I was going to even have a website. Uh, then I had to learn how to code HTML. Then I was told I needed a blog, uh, social media, email list building, recording videos, eventually doing interviews on people's podcasts. And so every, you know, every sometimes days, weeks or months, there was something new I had to learn how to do. So there was a lot of curiosity built up in that. And then when people encouraged me to start sharing more about being a blind entrepreneur, there were a lot of things there, like uh, writing my first book, traveling solo for the first time, uh, doing my first public talk, you know, uh, talking to, to, uh, high school kids for the first time, just a lot of, a lot of firsts, a lot of things to be curious about. And, uh, one of the things reviewers often say about my writing is that I approach it with a wide, a wide eyed wonder or a childlike wonder to where so many things that would be just another thing to other people become experiences to be savored by me. Well, that's, that's profound praise, I think. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, I think it's pretty much true. I mean, I've, I've written about having about, about, uh, about having oxtail stew in a restaurant I didn't plan on going to, you know, I've, I've written about missing a plane because the trash can turned up missing, you know, uh, basically as my friends say, if you're around Max, you have to be careful or you end up in his next book. <laughs> because I'm just always watching to see what's going to happen. You know, what, what moment is going to occur. And, you know, so many things happen in our lives every day that if we took the time to appreciate even one of them, our day would be much better. And it's one of the reasons why I like to tell people that finding the positive in your life is like finding anything else. It's like finding the TV remote or the car keys uh, or your smartphone, you decide it's there somewhere and you keep looking until you find it. So, I love that. oh yeah. It's yeah, very pragmatic. I think as people make this idea that uh, finding the positive thing in your life is this existential journey that we need to, you know, sit in the corner and, uh, you know, <laughs> sing Kumbaya or like <laughs> sit down for a while. And it's, and I don't think that's true. In fact, I've read studies where our brains become wired in a way that if we begin to look for positive, we see more positives. And, 
and the kind of the pleasure centers of our brain are are more lit up. And if we begin to see things as negative, we just we kind of relax and normalize this negativity. And and then we wonder, you know, what happened to us a year, three, five, ten years later, why we became uh, you know, kind of an asshole versus why we became, you know, a fun loving individual. Yeah, you know, it's different about you. Well, it's, I'm, yeah. I'm not trying to be an asshole. Yeah, I know. I know. It's like that. Some grandparents are sweet and light. And every time you see them, you get hugs, candy and money. And other grandparents are like, get off my lawn. Right. <laughs> it's like, right. Exactly. It's like being at a bar and then somebody has to get into a fight. It's like, why? Why is that the thing in your mind that you just like, I, I'm ready, I'm primed, I just can't wait to go out and argue with somebody. And that's just well, that's what happens on social media nowadays. Like, I, I know yeah. you know at least one person who they are not happy on Facebook or Twitter till there's something they can make a rant about. Right. <laughs> they are not happy. And uh, to help people out, because, you know, these things are not natural in the beginning, as you mentioned, you have to wire your brain for it. I encourage people to actually take out a piece of paper or open a document on their computer. And at the, at the end of the day, just make a list or find, find one thing, you know, make that your goal, find one thing each day. And, you know, like you say, as you do it, you'll get wired into doing it. And then maybe you can tell yourself, I'm going to find three or five things a day. And this is how you build up to the point where you can still find positive things. Like for example, when I sold a when I sold a quarter of a million dollar carousel and didn't get paid my twenty five thousand dollar commission, <laughs> that's a problem. That's a big problem. Yeah, I'd already started. I'd already started imagining spending the money. So, but <laughs> but I couldn't have done that if I hadn't had years of practice of finding positive things. And you know, it while I didn't get paid, my my web traffic was off the chart. People started reaching out to me to find hard to find items and. Other people started reaching out going, well, Max, if you can sell that, you know, uh, white elephant, then maybe you can sell something I have that we ha we can't get rid of. So right. it did a lot of great things for my business. And since I found the buyer and, and connected them with the seller in less than 30 minutes, I was like, you know, that just proved the power of my online communities. So there were a lot of good things. But if if I hadn't had years of practice, or as I like to tell people, I've had years of looking up at the sky or where the sky should be on my backside thinking, okay, what did I do now? And what can I do next? You know, so... That's true. So uh, I want to I want to get a little deeper here. Um, I know you're a pretty open guy and willing to share. You mentioned something I think which is uh, uh, a characteristic that many people feel and don't admit to, which is you, you talked about, you know, people tell me I'm good at something and yet you carry around the fact that maybe they're just maybe they're just blowing smoke. <laughs> maybe it's not actually real. Yeah, but but I'm one of the few people that will talk about it because the general conception is if I talk about something like that, I'm going to seem weak and people aren't going to want to like me, hire me or do business with me. You know, that's right. that's the and and I have coaches who tell me all the time, Max, I love that you're authentic. It's a great brand, but could you be a little less authentic? You know, I mean, <laughs> And I'm like, I don't really know how to do that. I probably could do it, but I think it might be painful. I think it might hurt me to have to, to really censor myself much. So, so yeah, there are areas where I am, uh, um, you know, I have a, I'm, 
I've, I'm starting to understand that I'm a really good storyteller, even though I generally use more words than I need to. But I'm a good storyteller. I'm really good. Not as good as my dad, which is one of the reasons why I will never see myself as a great storyteller. But I have a friend, Frederick Bai from Canada, who helped me get my podcast started back in the day when I didn't think I could do it by myself and I thought I needed a co-host. He, he recently wrote a thing for me, and it basically said, Max is a great storyteller. But he'll never admit it to himself because to admit that to himself would cause him, would cause his head to explode or something like that, you know? So there are some things where we, you know, we probably will never accept that we're as good as other people think we are. And of course, a lot of that is tied to, you know, past experiences. It's tied to current results. You know, some people are, are killing it, but they're not making money or they're killing it, but nobody's, nobody's reading their blog or listening to their podcast. So a lot of us are doing great work, but if you asked us if we were doing great work, it would depend on the, the, how our day was going up to that point as to whether or not we would admit it. Because I do have days where I believe I'm the superhero on my logo. And I have other days where I think, you know, I should have one that pictures me as Clark Kent or as underdog before he eats the coin. (laughs) That's true. I mean, do you think that that struggle is necessary uh, to, to experience those, to experience those moments? Do do you think it's necessary because it somehow spurs us on or do you think it's necessary because it prevents us from falling back into you know, that, that, that malaise that we don't want to go into where, how's it sit with you? You know, I like the way you asked that. I'm going to, I'm going to take part of that with me. Yeah. I think that, um, it is a defense against, uh, falling back as far as the work that we're doing and the effort we're putting out. And so I try to, I try to remember things like Paul McCartney did an interview for 60 minutes where he said that in his opinion, he doesn't think he's ever going to be as good as he wants to be he always has there's always more he can do to improve his his ability as a musician as a singer as a performer so if somebody like he like him can say that he still ain't there i think that's a pretty good indicator that uh for the rest of us it's not bad to uh to think we still have a ways to go the the trick for me has been to go from the oh shucks um i'm you know, I'm not important. Um, you're just saying that too. Well, I'm not as good as you think I am, but I'm pretty good, you know? Uh, and who knows, maybe someday I'll get to that point. I, I think the funny thing is, is if you read from my books that quite often I will say things in a format where they're written down that I would never say to you out loud. And I am much more confident about what I've done or hope to do in the future in my writing than I am in my speaking or when I talk to myself. I don't, I don't understand how that happens since I am the person writing the book, but for some reason that seems to happen with me. Do you think that's because the audience seems different? Oh, it could be. It could be because as an author, I'm never sure if the book is actually going to be published or not, because every time I publish, I have to go through that. Um, nobody wants to hear what you have to say moment before I press send. You know, isn't it the same symptom of the people who uh, you mentioned it earlier? You know, people come out on social media with all sorts of venom that they would never come at somebody with if they had to sit around a dinner table and talk it. But it's so easy because the, there's a there's a veil, there's a proxy for a person. And that is my screen. 
and whatever they're typing. And so I can say all sorts of things. Now, maybe if, doesn't that also happen with positive beneficial things that we could bring out because we don't have to stand up in front of somebody and be held accountable for it. Instead, we can hide behind our words. And then, you know, some myth, you know, maybe somebody's reading it, you know, in their underwear sitting at home or, you know, <laughs> as they're sitting on the toilet, right? We're all good books to read. Uh, I like that. I like you. Um, so yeah, I see what you're saying when I, and the, uh, so when I write, I'm not, I'm not thinking as much about the audience. Like you said, it's not like I'm going to sit there in front of somebody and read it to them. The other thing that happens that I just thought about is when I write, I work with an editor and I've been working with her for a long time now. Her name is uh, Lorraine regularly and people can find her at wordingwell.com. And if mentioning her gets me in trouble with you, then I'm just gonna have to be in trouble because she's one of those people. How do you spell that? I can put it up on the screen. All right. Yeah. Uh, L-O-R-R-A-I-N-E-R-E-G-U-L-Y. And then the website is just wordingwell.com, which is where people can find her. And so without her, my first book probably would have been published, but would have taken longer and not been as good. And she's gotten to the point where she kind of can finish my sentences because she's been, she's been editing for me long enough. And I think that that also plays a part in it that, you know, when you're having this conversation with your editor and you're just sending these emails back and forth, that sometimes I can be more honest in those sessions than I can when I'm on social media even. Mm -hmm. So I think you might be onto something there. I think that's a very good point. And uh, I, I try to be the same person in person and online and in my, in my books, you know, I try to be that same person all the time. Yeah. Because as a famous person once said, a, an honest person doesn't have to have a good memory. <laughs> right. <laughs> you That's know? true. So, so I try to be me whenever, wherever possible. So, but I like, I like your idea about why I can write in my books differently than I can in person or on social media. Well, I'm just curious, and I, I don't know where it came from, but I was I was recalling uh, as you were speaking that this idea. Um, I think I saw a performer. That's it was somebody on television, maybe. Um, and I saw how big and full and true to the experience that they were. Oh, yeah. And I and I and I thought um, as they're portraying that character, as that as that actor is portraying the character. Um, they are putting it out there like 100%. Like I fully believe that that individual is this character that they are playing. And, uh, and I kind of felt like so many of us are unwilling to go to that degree to just say, here's me 100% out in front of you. And if you don't like it, that's okay. This, this show's not for you. And, and I feel like we sometimes hold back the, the value that we could bring to the world because we refuse to put our 100% of us out there into the space. I think it's a very good point. Um, and I, I think it's probably something we could learn a lot from, uh, from actors and other performers about this idea of giving the 100% of the character and and like you said, if, if the, if it doesn't resonate with the people that you're talking to or being seen by, then they, then they just weren't the right audience for the show. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. I don't know. That's an interesting thought. Um, well, we don't have to go further down that road. <laughs> I'm glad because it was starting to be painful. <laughs> I'm having to think a little harder than I like to. 
<laughs> so I'm curious, what's the uh, interview that is? So. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it. I can't help but get. Uh, I can't help but get deep. Um, so I'm curious um, for our listeners, uh, it, it, comparing and contrasting what it's like to be blind and need feedback about space, about what you look like, about what you sound like. Where where am I at? A lot of people. Folks with sight take all sorts of things, I think, for granted um, because I we can overlook all sorts of um, well, we can see we can see a lot of nonverbal communication. We can see where things are at. Um, how, what degree of feedback do you have you become comfortable with asking for to be able to acclimate yourself to environments? I think it's an interesting question. I have. No problem with asking people about uh, how I look, where I'm at, what what is around me. The problem I've run into over the years is some people are just a little timid, if not outright afraid, to give me those answers. And, for example, I've been doing podcasts as a host and a guest since 2013. And up until a year ago, I had done probably over 200 podcast interviews. And every single time I did an interview with somebody who recorded video, I the last thing I asked him before we went live is, do I look good? Am I in focus? Um, are people going to be distracted? And if so, is there something we can do about it? And nobody ever, ever, ever said, you need to fix this or your lighting is bad or something. They, yeah. Nobody ever, ever answered that question the way I needed them to answer it. And on one show, I even had to show up 30 minutes early so they could do a sound and lighting test, test. but I guess all they tested was the sound because I found out um, last, yeah, last fall at a conference, one of my friends who I had met the previous year at the same conference, uh, her name is Stacy Greenberg. She came up to me, she said, Max, I want to tell you something that most people are probably afraid to tell you. Um, your camera angle is horrible. It's distracting to the viewer. And it is turning people off. And at that time, I was using the camera on my laptop. Um, most of the time, I was sitting up, but I was reclined a little bit. So using the camera on my laptop, what was happening is people were looking up at me, which I understand is disconcerting to y'all sighted people. And they were, because they were looking up at me, they were also looking like up my nose, so it was not a good angle. It was very distracting. Uh, people say it's a wonder I've still managed to build an audience uh, in, in spite of the fact that my video was not great. And she said, you need to fix that. So my, uh, me and my nephew, we bought a, a second camera that uh, is a USB camera and set it up on a shelf. So now, you know, most of the time I'm either looking right at it or it's looking down on me depending on how I'm sitting. But at least I'm not looking up at it. Uh, then we had to go through the same thing with the lighting so that, you know, now I've purchased a second light source. So, you know, I don't have the disconnected head effect. And those are things that I've been asking people, sighted people, some of them close friends who had podcasts and nobody was ever honest enough to go, no, that, that won't work. So, um, and then the, my, my most favorite example of that was I gave a talk to the foundation fighting blindness and, uh, you know, of course, sometimes the visually impaired community isn't as concerned about our image as we should be. And at the end of the talk, a lady comes up to me. Her name is Chelsea Nguyen. She's a stylist who helps people who are visually impaired. She says, you know, 
you would probably get a lot more bookings if you actually cared what you look like. I'm, <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, but that was the point. Um, and she did eventually help me a lot to the point, you know, where I could now tie a tie and comb my hair. And I actually have a suit. So, I mean, uh, things that I had to learn from her. And, yes, she is sighted, but she works with the blind. But so many people would never say anything to me. Even the guy who rode, who drove me down there didn't say anything to me. And just, you know, to help y'all that are trying to picture this. At that time, I had gray hair down to my shoulders. I was wearing a black denim, denim shirt uh, with no jacket, no tie, um, t- jeans and tennis shoes. That was the best I had at that time. And I'm like, well, this is what I have. This is what I'm going to go in and I'm going to give the talk and, you know, if, if if it affects whether or not people will listen to me, then that'll be something. But it's not anything I could deal with right this minute. And as it turned out, I had a great discussion during the question and answer, answer session with a doctor that was there to talk about um, advances in gene therapy for people with vision loss. And we had a great conversation about my trip to New York and how I navigated a big city and the transit of a big city. So... I've, I find that a lot of people are willing to give me a break on the visual stuff, but it really, it really is important to me because I find that if I do that right, it impresses the heck out of y'all. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I hate to sound crass, but it's the truth. You know, um, it, the bar is very low for a person with vision loss in the sighted community. And What's that old line? If they underestimate me, it's easy for me to impress them. And so there, there is a little bit of that involved. So, uh, but yeah, I, I do appreciate it when people give me more visual, vivid descriptions. I really appreciate it when website owners go beyond just the minimum of writing a short caption of their images to actually writing a true description so that I understand what the image looks like that everybody else is looking at when they read the post. You know, mm-hmm. those are things I appreciate. It's not easy to get people to do because, you know, they have to think about it. But I think part of the thing, one of the things I could do and other blind people can do is to have some patience and go, uh, that was cool. But, you know, let's just slow down and think about it more as a more in reference of, say, describing it to somebody who's never seen it. Just like the my English teacher used to tell me to write as if I'm writing to somebody who doesn't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Well, and the reason I ask, not I think, I think you're in a unique place to be able to, um, to be able to understand or communicate, uh, especially to sighted folks, but not just sighted folks, just people in general. The necessity of feedback because you wouldn't know, you just legit would not know some of these things if somebody didn't tell you. You can't just pick it up, um, and and I think that many times, and I'm thinking. You know, as young as as young as kids, like my daughter, she, you know, sometimes she has a, has a hard time asking the question in class because she doesn't want to be called out for like like not knowing the answer, right? Or you know, she's like, and it's not a dumb question. You know, probably eighty percent of the kids in the class have the same exact question, but they're unwilling to say, "Hey, can you just tell me such and such? Can you clarify? Can you show me?" And I think that that holds us back many times because we're unwilling to put our, it's, it's again, it's a process. Like I just need to put myself out there. I just need you to tell me, well, can you give me some direct feedback? Just, it's very pragmatic. It's not personal. Yeah. Just yeah. give me and something to make it better. Right. Right. And it's one of those things where I actually have an advantage over the, over the rest of the world because 
when most people are going through school and college or just living their lives, they are either told directly or by implication that uh, putting your hand up and asking for help or asking for information is a bad thing. You know, you look weak, you look um, ignorant, you know, you, you look stupid, you know, it's embarrassing. To, but the thing is, is I grew up and a lot of other people who grow up knowing they're going to lose vision, they grew up being told, don't ever be afraid to ask for help or ask for information or ask for the opportunity because, um, one, people will want to help you, and two, not asking for the help makes your life more difficult. And so I've done my best to try to teach everybody that you re we really need to be asking these questions. We need to be asking for clarification, for opportunities, for help in general, because it does make other people feel good when they help you or when they provide you answers to questions you're struggling with. And the most important thing to remember, and this is something I'm going to say twice because it's really important and other podcast hosts have asked me to say it twice. So that's what I'm going to do. And here it goes. When you refuse to ask, you rob the other person of the joy they would have received from helping you. So yeah. put the focus on the other person and take it off yourself. When you refuse to ask for help, you rob the other person of the blessing. You rob the other person of the joy they would have received from helping you. I, you know what? I'm so glad that you brought that up. I, uh, I'm a big proponent of understanding personalities and who we are, uh, or we're, we're not who we are, but what our tendencies are as individuals. And I think some people in particular are wired to help. It's like their thing and they feel, they don't feel full. They don't feel the fullness of their life until they are helping and, and giving them the opportunity to help in a moment provides them a fullness as if like the fullness for me is understanding things, digging deep, really getting into the content of it, really understanding it, exploring my fullness does not necessarily come through, you know, Hey, let's help you move your stuff, you know, <laughs> from, from your other place, you know, but some people they do, it like lights their soul on fire. Like, Oh my gosh, thank you so much for bringing me in on that hard work. That's, and, and I think you're, you're, you're spot on there. And for all of us, I think our lives don't become full in, in kind of in general or well-rounded at least until we are also giving back to somebody. And, and I think there are unique ways that each of us can give back. And if we don't know, if, if, if you're not communicating the need, how would I know? And, and you're right. I'm missing out. You're missing out. Yeah, there's a there's a line in the song "Lean on Me" where it says, "No one can fill the needs, the needs that dang it, the lines escape. No one can fill the needs that they don't know, or something like that. Dang it. Yeah, I just recorded that song a, a month ago, and now that lines escape. But but yeah, we have to tell people. And then uh, just for those people who. Um, are wondering about this. Uh, there's a, there's what I like to call the PhD level of asking. And that comes from accepting help that's offered by people that we don't recall asking for that. We don't, we think, I don't know, you know, somebody comes up, they offer you information or they want to help you with something. You're like, uh, I don't know why they think I need their help. I mean, what do you think? I'm, you know, you think I'm weak or something. Why don't you go help somebody who needs your help? You know, the ego really, you know, just jumps up and says, Hey, um, I don't want people thinking that I need help. And so 
one thing is, is we do ask in lots of different ways. You know, we pray, we meditate, as you say, sometimes we get focused on a particular need and sometimes that focus is positive and sometimes it's negative, but we pray, we meditate. Sometimes you send an email. Sometimes people, even some of my, some people online just have the ability to understand and read between the lines and understand a need, even if you don't think that you ever expressed a need. And they will reach out and offer you the information or offer to help you with the problem. And at that point, you have to remember that one, it doesn't say anything about you at all. Two, you did ask, you just didn't ask out loud. You don't remember asking. And three, it took just as much courage for them to offer to help you as it takes for you to ask for help. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dave, uh, one of our viewers is writing in. He says, I do think that we all deep down want to help others, but it's a question of people recognizing that innate desire to help and having the courage to act. So some people don't recognize their innate desire and have that courage to act. Well, this is true. But if I ask enough people, some of them are going to say no. And eventually I'm going to find that one person that says yes. I mean, uh, but you have to get comfortable asking one person one question before you can get to the point where, you know, you're just going to go, okay, I'm just going to keep asking until I find somebody or, uh, you know, or you, you think, okay, here, you, if you make it a, you know, a really thoughtful process, you'll think, okay, here's the problem I have, or here's the question I need the answer to. Who do I know that would specifically know that answer or be able to help? Or, you know, possibly somebody I know that has, has experience in this area or I've, I've seen uh, answer other people's questions. And they go to that person and go, look, hey, I know that you know this stuff. I know you've spent years of your life developing a skill, learning, learning uh, information. I'm struggling with this. Would you please help? So a lot of it is practice asking getting over the fear of being embarrassed when you have to ask. And part of it is just being consistent and, you know, knowing that if you ask enough people, eventually you're going to find somebody that will be able to help you. Yeah, absolutely. Dave also says 100% agree. So in our final uh, handful of minutes here, uh, I've got a real, <clears throat> real, real important question to ask you. Um, I'll give you just a minute. I'm going to ask the question. I'll give you a minute to think about it and while I think about the same uh, question answer, which is if I were to come to your, come to your town and we were to go out to dinner, where would we go out to dinner and why you can have a minute to think about that while I think about the answer. And then whenever you're ready, go ahead and take Okay. If we're talking pre COVID because the answer has changed since Corona, uh, we would go to a little place called Lindo Acapulco. It's a family-owned Mexican restaurant. Everybody that works there is either related or is longtime friends of people who work there. Uh, I'm not going to say they make authentic Mexican because there's no such thing as authentic Mexican in Texas, but it's some of the best Mexican food. Uh, they offer great beer and margaritas, and it's a it's not a quiet place, but it's not so loud that you can't have a reasonable conversation with the people you came there to eat with. Nice. That's a great answer. You were reminding me of tacos uh, at a uh, reasonably good Mexican place here. So if so, the same question for me, I think I would answer uh, in downtown Rockford, we got a place called Social. Uh, and again, it's pre-COVID because they're shut down right now because uh, the whole point of Social is that there's these long tables and you're seated probably very close or right next to someone that you've never met. 
And so your party of two or three people or four people could be sitting at the same table with another two, three or four couple. And, and it's, it's, it's disconnected or big enough that you, you know, you could have your own kind of private, uh, you know, your private uh, meeting or party, but you're also so close to somebody that as their food gets delivered, you know, instead of, instead of kind of pointing across and saying, Hey, what is that? You, you talk to them instead and you're like, Oh my gosh, what did you order? And they're like, Oh, that's the chicken, whatever it is. And with Brussels sprouts, it's, I think it's a fantastic, uh, not only from a food standpoint, uh, it's a fantastic restaurant, not only from a food standpoint, the food is point on or on point, I guess that's the word, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's on point, delicious, but also the atmosphere uh, is all about um, kind of a collective joy of enjoying the evening and enjoying the food. You know, that sounds like an Irish, uh, it was a fake Irish pub that I went to in New York, but the, the, <laughs> the tables in the restaurant were kind of that way. And I remember having a, a, a great conversation with the couple that was sitting at the next table to me. So yeah, I can totally picture this place social. How do you have a fake Irish pub? Was it run by a real Scottish person or what? <laughs> I could tell by the food. Okay. Uh, I could tell by the food. Okay. Okay. Cause I've had fish and chips and I know the difference between chips and French fries. And that if, if you can't even get that far and get it right, then you know, you're not in a real Irish pub. Okay. It's, <laughs> Uh, I get it. All right. That's kind of like, you know, they, they say if you go to a restaurant in Texas and you go in there to eat chicken fried steak and you sit down and, and the rolls came out of a box or the mashed potatoes came out of a box, you might as well just get back in your car because the steak ain't going to be good either. Right. <laughs> well, Max, I actually had a very nice meal there, but I could tell yeah. that it was not authentic. Right. Well, that's the th- I mean, that's the thing. Right. So a lot of things that we enjoy have nothing at all to do with where they actually came from. <laughs> but true. Where, would Chinese, where would Chinese restaurants be if it was authentic? Oh my gosh. Right. That's <laughs> totally true. Yeah. American, Americanese is delicious. Um, but some people would not enjoy real, real, uh, authentic Chinese food at all. Yeah. And I understand the same thing applies to Spanish food versus Mexican food. Yeah. Hmm. Like pizza. You know, I, I've found, I have legit, I have found places that don't know how to make pizza. And I keep on wondering what the hell went wrong. Why? How could you not, how could you screw up pizza? And I do love pizza. <laughs> you know, in, Ita- in Italy, they now have a national law that specifies what a pizza is and isn't. And you can actually be fined for selling a pizza that doesn't conform to the national standards for pizza. That is brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant. They figured out how to do it with whiskey, but they should be doing it with pizza. They should be doing, yeah, they should be doing that with tacos. They should be doing all sorts of things. I think more regulation in the food industry. That's what we're talking about. Forget this whole, like making things safe. Let's make things edible. Well, you know, we had a similar thing with cheese, although that was more about branding than the quality of the cheese, where if if the cheese didn't come from the specific region, you couldn't call it that cheese. I had a client once, um, that makes sense. I had a client once who, who used cheese that was so high butter fat. I think legally it couldn't be called cheese. Um, it, it was something like that. Like it was, it was closer to cream than it was to cheese or something like that. I can't remember. 
Yeah. I don't know. Well, we're, we're, we're winding down on our time here, Max, this has been fantastic. I've so much enjoyed getting to know you and I know our listeners and viewers have as well. I'm going to put your website up on the screen here, the blindblogger.net. Right. Uh, and just a comment I want to make about this live yeah. streaming y'all. Um, it's, almost impossible for me to follow your comments and reply to them. And I even have trouble after a live streaming is over. So if I said something you liked, I would really appreciate it if you would either uh, write me at just ask at the blindblogger.net or use the contact link on there. And let's start a discussion over what you, what you liked or didn't like. And if, if I said something, you was like, man, I'd like really like to call BS on that. Well then send me an email. Yeah. All right, I put your web. I put your uh, email up to, instead. Ask at theblindblogger.net. Just, just ask. Just ask. Just ask. All right. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry about that. I didn't mean to. I'm sorry about throwing you a curveball. I'm sorry about that. But I mean, All right. Just ask at theblindblogger.net. There you yeah, go. if you've got feedback for Max, uh, things you want to get into a heated argument with him, I think he's just accept. I think he's accepting heated arguments now. <laughs> That's what I heard. Um, I'm going to tell you the same thing about heated arguments that I say about trolls and and, uh, haters on the internet. I do not want them, do not appreciate them, but thankfully I've never had one. So, well, there you go. If they have a subject for heated conversation, I'll see if I can't cool it down. All righty. Well, Max, stick around for just a minute. I'm going to play our outro video. Viewers, thanks so much for following along. Thanks for your comments. uh, And get in contact with Max at theblindblogger.net. And we'll see you next time at Coffee with Humans. One of the things I love about Coffee with Humans are the raw conversations I get to have meeting new people just like you. If you or someone you know should be on Coffee with Humans, go to coffeewithhumans.com. Remember... The only rule is no sales calls. This has been Coffee with Humans. Subscribe to get updates or click to have coffee with me. Coffeewithhumans.com.